0: Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance, in association with Hogan Lovells.
1: Hi, everyone listening. Welcome to the December 2021 edition of That Privacy Podcast. We're starting to get into the Christmas limbo. It's 22nd of December today, when clients and colleagues all start quietly disappearing. But I'm really pleased that uh, Alexis and Eduardo uh, are uh, unsurprisingly still here, present and working hard until the end of the week. So hi, guys. How are you doing?
2: Oh, well, good. Good to good to be virtually with you guys here.
1: Super.
0: Yeah, great to be with you.
1: Great stuff. So let's uh, jump straight in. We're we're going to wrap the, uh, the year up with a kind of roundup of some key stories. Not really like an annual review, more of just key stories that we're looking at at the moment. To um, to finish off uh, what has been a really really interesting year, on our shortlist today, uh, a look at recent ICO ad tech guidance, or more of a, a kind of in, a detailed statement that we'll have a have a chat about, the recently implemented federal act on the regulation of data protection and privacy in telecommunications and telemedia, or a short version TTDsG in Germany, and to finish the year, uh, change at the top of the ICO. Elizabeth Denham obviously has recently finished her tenure. John Edwards will start in January, so we'll just be reflecting on some of the events and the ICO's development during uh, Elizabeth Denham's tenure. So lots to come on today's podcast, but first let's take a look at the recent EDPB guidance on data transfers, again from, from the last month or so, and the current open consultation period. Um, but Eduardo, I'll come to you in a, in a second, if I can. But first of all, Alexis, give us some context. Obviously, we've been talking about data transfers nonstop for the last X, X years. But, um, you know, what's the context here on this guidance? Why is it important? And um, yeah, just just fill us in.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. So um, EDPB issued um, a public consultation on its guidelines Now, between the interplay of Article 3 of the GDPR and the provisions on international data transfers um, under Chapter 5 of the GDPR, and as you said, consultation is running at the moment, open till the end of January, so Still plenty of time for everybody to get their comments in. Um, And I think, really, there were a couple of questions that ended up getting raised, especially over the last um, six months or so. Obviously, as you mentioned, David, a lot of focus recently on international data transfers. And as a result, a couple of questions that have come up. And I think um, two of the things that were, I think, intended, from the EDPB's perspective to give clarification on is, um, one, actually the the term international data transfer and what that term actually means. And two, whether those obligations on international data transfers apply to those data importers that may already be subject to the gdpr and it's quite helpful i think i mean i'd be really as you say i'd be very keen to hear eduardo's thoughts on this but i think um you know a very uh, good set of guidelines is ever from the uh, from the edpb you know they they they're really starting to push forwards um some very practical tips and roadmaps and things like that for mm-hmm. organizations so they've put together this cumulative criteria of whether uh, to define the concept of an international data transfer and you know to meet, uh, to qualify as a transfer, there are these three cumulative criteria um, that the EDPB says must be adhered to. And so that's quite helpful on the one hand. And then on the other hand, they also give quite a few examples that I know have been questions raised in the community as to whether uh, a particular circumstance counts as a transfer or not. And so those are quite helpful. Um, but Eduardo, uh, as ever, I know that you know much of your work <laughs> over uh, a long time has been on Data transfers, and particularly over the last few years, what's been your view of these guidelines?
2: Yes, uh, thanks, Alexis. I, I think the EDPB um, opinion on this is is good. I think it's it's always very helpful to see the EDPB taking a a, a clear view on something. Although. It's kind of ironic in a way that every time that the EDPB tries to clarify something that results in loads of questions that I'm getting from from clients and and others about and and debates within our international team about what they really mean. But I I thought the EDPB position was quite clear and in, in some respects quite obvious because to look at an international data transfer as... A an activity that requires an exporter, for example. I think that's pretty obvious. I, I had always thought mm-hmm. that you needed to have two two parties for a transfer, not just one grabbing the data from overseas. Mm-hmm. If that if that makes sense. So you you still need a European-based exporter of the data, and uh, and also you need two different entities and i think we we can be relatively flexible in the way we we interpret the the concept of a, of an entity in the same way we're flexible with who can be a controller for example and perhaps the the one issue the issue that people were focusing on was to what extent if the importer Uh, was already subject to the GDPR, that was still a transfer because, of course, if the transfer mechanisms are aimed at protecting the data because of the lack of protection, if you are already subject to the GDPR as an importer, what was the rationale? But I always thought that it was almost too good to be true, to be thinking that if the importer was subject to the GDPR, that was not a restrictive transfer. Uh, Ultimately, the the, the data is still Uh, flowing in a way, and the data is still exposed to the potential, uh, I don't know, weaknesses or access to data in a different jurisdiction. So, the the concept of of international data transfer, as again, as defined, or perhaps interpreted by the EDPB, is is well positioned. There is one thing in this uh, uh, opinion with which I would personally Disagree, And I think it's, it's a debate to be had, obviously. But um, w- what I'm not really entirely sure is the point about uh, an EU processor that yes. is, let's say, returning non-EU data to a non-GDPR bound controller. So you've got a, 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 the owner, let's say, of the data overseas, it, it, it doesn't involve data that is subject to the GDPR, and then the fact that that entity or that controller is engaging a processor in the EU or in the UK, uh, that qualifies a, a restricted transfer when the data goes back to overseas, it seems it seems a bit strange or even absurd, I I think that that is something that probably requires a bit further debate and it's useful that this is uh, published as a consultation because no doubt there will be opinions on on that front. But overall, yes, uh, I don't want to be critical without having to be critical because I think overall it's a good opinion and I think it's pretty
1: clear. So, so even though it's raising questions from your clients um, you know as, as these opinions uh, or, or guidelines often do, you know in our last podcast, I think you, you you said a lot of people you were talking to in the privacy community were making decisions on international transfers that you know were, were good guesses based on their long experience working in this space and without actual clarity in, in certain areas. You do you do th- think that this does take everyone forward a little bit, albeit still with further questions?
2: What, what I always say when the EDPB or indeed other regulators publish their opinions is that whether you agree with them or not, and you know you don't have to agree, <laughs> you, you can have your own assessment of the law. Um, but whether you agree with them or not, they are very helpful because they tell you what they are thinking. Sure. So they, they, <laughs> it's true. So they, if they if they, they are the enforcers of the law, and they are going to take a position on that law. If they tell you in advance what that position is, it's extremely helpful. Then you can say, okay, well, uh, to be safe, I'm just going to go with what they're saying. Or yeah. if I disagree, I need to make sure that I have grounds uh, and uh, arguments to come back to them and to say, yeah, I know you said this, but actually this we I think this is not correct because of that. And But overall, uh, I do welcome, obviously, when the EDPB and I think... Credit should be given to to the uh, to the European data protection authorities for how prolific they are uh, in providing their thinking and making it available to everybody.
1: Good stuff. And that that period consultation period runs until the end of January, I believe. Yeah. Cool. Good stuff. Okay. Okay. Let's let's move on to the next topic, which is um, the T- TTDSG, uh, which implements the e-privacy directive into German law and I think entered into force at the start of this month, right, uh, start of December. So first question to you Alexis, the e-privacy directive is from 2002, <laughs> we're almost in 2022, so <laughs> talk us through a little bit about, you know, what's going on here, um, you know, why is this, this is important, why is it important and give us some of that historical context. <laughs> there were there were uh, making good cars, I think, in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, some things never never get old.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting one, like you say. Uh, so yeah, I mean there's been there's been a lot of discussion over um this this implementation of article five three of the e-privacy directive in in Germany and whether it was um, adequately implemented um, or not. And I think, you know, TTDSG was developed as a result of, you know, a few decisions that took place both from the CJU and uh, the German Federal Court of Justice. And um, that was around the Planet 49 case. And um, you know the German Federal Court of Justice ended up finding that amendments made to Article 53 of the ePrivacy directly uh, of the e-privacy Directive were not correctly or properly transposed into German law, and therefore, as part of you know the uh, 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 one of the things of what the TTDSG is aimed at is consolidating a few different things that are already in place at the moment the telemedia act the telecommunications act but also addressing um, this issue of, of whether article 5-3 was correctly transposed and as you say it, it ended up kicking into effect on the first of december um earlier this month and um it It's got a few different interesting things uh, about it. Um, You know, it's quite um, broad. It it applies to organizations, not just in Germany, but around the world. And, um, you know, goes into a little bit of detail over what types of cookies uh, require consent and those that do not. So lots of lots of interesting things as ever Um, the the realm of the cookie world at the moment seems to be one that's always um has something being talked about (laughs) at the moment um eduardo I, i i don't know whether you know this has been something that um you've also been getting questions around and you know as to why it's come around now, as David was alluding to earlier, why this wasn't already addressed, you know what you know we should be doing as organizations to make sure that we're in compliance with the law, how much it differs to you know the rest of Europe, which you know we as we say, we've been having a look at cookie requirements for quite some time. So regulators have been issuing guidance, left, right, and center enforcement has been priority number one for some of them, like Canil so we now have this new law in germany is it new or not <laughs> well,
2: it it is new in germany but i think i think the the one issue about cookie consent compliance that i have seen over over the years and even more so in recent times is that organizations approach it as a pan european issue like more than any other in a, in a way and is uh, also Sort of ironic that you've got this diversity of opinions, and in some countries until at least in Germany until now, you didn't have a, a proper law dealing with it. I think um the developments in Germany again are used are useful from a from a certainty perspective in the sense that at least now we know what the law says. but this you know the cookies are are on fire at the moment, and the the, the past eighteen months, last, uh, right. it's true, and, and we've seen enforcement, and we've seen complaints, and we've seen the EDPB are uh, uh, putting together a task force looking at, at at these issues, and we we obviously the ICO was quiet for a while, now they have issued their opinion on and the new opinion on AppTech, tech, we have. Uh, tca uh, tcf um under scrutiny more than ever before so after all this time and it's funny that you were referring to the to the old e privacy directive and how things have been uh, developing over decades really but it is in, in a matter of of just a few months that things have uh, heated up at a at a level that i haven't really seen before so yeah, yeah. Overall, this is another top priority, I think, for for next year in tra- in terms of getting getting our act together and deciding what amounts to compliance with cookie consent, what is in, what is out, and and I think regulatory guidance will be uh, an important point of reference, but again, not the only one.
1: Yes, just interesting right.
2: men-
1: mention there um, on the pan-European approach, Eduardo. What why do you think that is that, you know, in your in your view, organizations do take a kind of um, national approach when it comes to other things, uh, other areas of privacy, but, you know, more of a European approach on, on cookies? Do you want to unpack that a little bit?
2: Because because cookies live. On the internet and the internet is, is global. The the internet has no borders and all websites look the same. They're just in different languages. So yeah. <laughs> I think the there's, 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 sure, there's, there's strategy, so digital strategies for companies tend to be, if not global, at least international. Yeah. And therefore the compliance approach to those strategies are also uh, global or, or at least international I'm sure you, you guys have seen that as well. so from a compliance perspective and deploying some kind of cookie consent uh, mechanism' it's not it's not something that companies looked at look at, uh, look at uh, uh, on a country by country basis is is operated as I say on on that basis and and it's, it's that it's the nature of the beast in a way that it is it goes beyond borders more than anything else.
1: Yeah. So, what are we going to see uh, next year? Any any ideas on where this <laughs> whole piece could go? We talked about e privacy regulation a while ago. Uh, it's hard to say, obviously. But you know, what are you like guys looking out for in in this space?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I I think definitely uh, it, it's one that we're going to still be talking about in twenty twenty two. Still a few pending. Um, issues from regulators that they're having a look at. Obviously, as Eduardo was saying, which we can talk a little bit more about, the ICO also just um, issued its opinion in for market players in ad tech. And then, as you mentioned, David, obviously we've been chatting about it for a few years. We still have the e-privacy regulation and whether that will actually make it through the negotiations between the institutions at an EU level. Obviously, we did have the Council agreeing its mandate at the very beginning of this year, January, uh, February 2021, Um, but we haven't seen a whole lot of movement since that time. And I think, Eduardo, you've, you've talked about this quite a lot, just of the difficulty in trying to reach a consensus between the various member states and uh, the different opinions on uh, a very, very complex matter. And, you know, that's kind of one of the, the main reasons is why it's been difficult to reach an agreement. But um, in the meantime, we've still had a lot of national movement as well. Um, so, I, yeah. The, the thing, the debates
2: on the E-Privacy Regulation, of course, which have been going on for, for years, uh, are all about splitting hairs, really. I, I think, and I, I'm I'm trying not to sound as being cynical here, but I just don't think that E-Privacy Regulation, once it is adopted one day in the future, once we are all retired, then uh, <laughs> I don't think it's going to change that much, because the the principle is still the same, that you need to obtain consent for the deployment of, of cookie type information or accessing cookie type information from devices. So when you have a principle which is like that based on consent of the user for something which is so difficult to even understand, let alone take a view uh, on, you, you've got that that uh, dilemma and that um, crisis that we have had for the for the past 10 years. So I think, uh, so the, the, the law is not going to go away. It will change. It will look more modern because it's called a regulation instead of a, a directive and so on. But the, the challenges will be identical to what we have today. Yeah. And technology will move and will test the boundaries of, of the application of the law. But it will, it, we need to get to the bottom of uh, one what consent is needed for, and wh- where the gray la- gray areas are, and there's a lot to be said about uh, analytics and 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 uh, performance type cookies right. and performance type functionality mm-hmm. uh, uh, data collection that is going on. So th- what is in, what is out, how how to obtain consent properly, what it, what level of certainty do you actually need, and what level of choice, do you actually need? Is it just okay to say to be to see a big red button saying yes for goodness sake? I, I'm happy with cookies. Or do you mm-hmm. actually need to say, uh, are you really really sure you want cookies? Um, because if you don't want cookies, there is another even bigger and redder button here that says no, I don't want cookies. You, you know, I'm, I'm, I know it's, it, it sounds hilarious, but it's just. Uh, it's just the situation, the reality of the situation. So we need um, we need that level of certainty, which uh, again will be a subject of debate over the next few months for sure. And the fact that regulators are enforcing the law, and the, the fact that regulators, even the ones that are uh, perhaps more uh, pragmatic in their thinking, are still being very gung ho uh, about it. The ICO, and we'll see what happens in Germany, of course. So I think. Uh, it it is uh, uh, another hot potato for 2022, for sure.
1: Great, Steph. Oh, that's a pretty good final word on on that matter until (laughs) until the next surprising development um, in 2022 in this area. So let's just jump forward. The next on our kind of hit list of topics to cover today is the recent um, opinion or uh, statement or guidance, if if, if you will, from the ICO three or four weeks ago, I think 25th of, of November. Uh, concerning ad tech, and really interesting document, um, you know, released. Obviously, the ICO has been been looking at this a lot over the last few years, and will reflect uh, in a minute on Elizabeth Denham's tenure and obviously, you know, her priorities, including ad tech during that time. Um, uh, what 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 do you think the ICO are trying to achieve, you know, right now, you know, the end of twenty twenty one in this area? It seems to me that. There's a kind of race uh, between industry and the regulators to uh, understand where this whole area is going and and to obviously get get there first and and establish some ground rules and baking in from regulators' point of view principles of privacy by design etc. You know what would you add to that? What and how do you assess the the ICO's position on in ad tech at the moment? So I, I think look the, the first
2: thing they are trying to do is to remind everybody that they haven't forgotten, the ICO hasn't forgotten about cookies. Because last time they issued some uh, public opinion on this was I think in the summer of 2019. So we're talking of over two years. Mm -hmm. Then the more serious point about uh, what the ICO is trying to do here is to again remind everybody that it's not just about cookies because cookies will eventually disappear the way we know um, cookies today. And the ICO is already referring to the new uh, way of uh, storing information on devices or collecting information from devices. And I think their main message is, uh, look, whatever you do next, you Mm -hmm. still need to comply with this law that, by the way, requires consent. And in line with that thinking, they're still having a go at the mechanisms that are in place today. And it is actually quite critical of uh, of the the fact that despite the the uh, position, the quite harsh position that the ICO took a couple of years ago, very m- little movement seems to have been, or at least they have they have not perceived, uh, to 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 having a lot of movement in terms of changing cookie consent compliance to something that is more more uh, compliant or m- easier to uh, to to deal with and i think that is uh, an, a sublime, perhaps a or, or underlying message behind the ico's opinion but what do you think alexis
0: yeah I mean I totally agree and I think just on that um last point of yours I think um you know you're you're absolutely right and I think the the ICO as you know re- as is kind of evident from the last few years of the way it's had a look at um new technologies and issues that are complex as well as, as you say, obviously remind everybody of, you know, the framework and the principles and that they are focusing on this particular matter, as you say, you know, uh, especially ad tech, where it's been a couple of years since we've um, seen movement from them, which they also, um, you know, say themselves, but also trying to, I think, engage the industry as, much as possible so that, you know, proposals can be put out so that there is an effort from organizations to have a look at the items that the ICO highlights, that we need solutions to deal with um, these kinds of issues and hopefully create a space where organizations feel good about coming forward and say, listen, we've developed this. What do you think? They've Mm -hmm. done it a few times with their previous sandbox initiatives as well. It's not quite a sandbox, but it does feel it does have a hint of that to some degree for me. I I think
2: the ICO is very good at playing the sort of good cop, bad cop uh, role uh, Mm -hmm. at the same time, because you're right. they, They are inviting, I don't know, let's call it the industry to be forthcoming and to say, look, we want to understand how. You want to operate. We understand that the internet actually is free to the users. You know, we, we every time that kind of statement is made, um, is uh, people will say, "Well, you pay with your data and all that." Fine. So that, but that's the point. Uh, and therefore, um, we need to accept how the the internet works in the first instance. And I think the ICO is is again pragmatic from that point of view. But at the same time. Uh, as I said, they are quite critical of the mechanisms for consent, or at least some of the mechanisms for consent that are being deployed at the moment. And I think they do have a point, t- to be honest, when they are critical of the of the TCF, uh, the, the transparency and consent framework, because I think that the, the mistake that was made there when that TCF was developed was that Whoever whoever did that decided to mix cookie consent under e privacy with lawful grounds of processing under the GDPR, and I think that was a tactical mistake. If you want, and I can understand why uh, one would approach the two things in parallel and try to make some sense of that, but it's too complex and it's not needed. You know, you don't you don't need some kind of Consent framework to talk about legitimate interests—it it doesn't belong there, and and the reason why I'm saying that—and look, I, I am, uh, I I'm very conscious of how useful that framework has been for for the again for publishers and for for advertisers and to try to harmonize compliance. I appreciate that, but I think it needs some rethinking and the reason for that is very simple the moment you have something that is meant to obtain consent and at the same time in the same mechanism you talk about legitimate interests it is seen it is a red flag it's like it's seen as a cop-out by regulators in the sense that oh you needed to obtain consent but oh let's not worry about it because uh, we can't rely on legitimate. That is, is is this seen like that? And that, I think that is the challenge that the TCF uh, has at the moment to un- undo that perception. And the ICO is, I think, is keen to address that. And uh, and to be honest, I hope other regulators are as well. And the way to resolve that is through uh, a bit of dialogue and a bit of. Uh, uh, the sort of understanding of each other's positions I always say this it's, you know it's not like one is right and the other one is wrong you need they need to understand each other's positions and and and, and see what is doable and and then implement something that works in practice so that's where
1: how I see it. Thanks everyone. And um, let's move on to the final point of today's discussion. We always aim to end uh, do this under half an hour, by the way. we always creep creep slightly over thirty minutes. but <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate everyone uh, staying with us as we rifle through the these four topics today. So the last one's gonna be kind of quite nice to reflect on. um Elizabeth Denham's tenure as uh, information commissioner started uh, in the summer of twenty sixteen. And um, yeah, finished uh, just 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 recently. Uh, I think early December or late November. Um, we're in a kind of an interim period at the moment. John Edwards, as you said, Alexis at the start will start on the third or the fourth of January. So um, yeah, nice time to reflect on the last four, five years and huge change and a huge time of growth for the ICO. Um, you know, implementation of GDPR and, and many and many other things. So. Yeah, let's just let's just spend a couple of minutes reflecting on that. What do you think the the legacy of Elizabeth Denham's tenure will be, and what are the kind of things people will remember?
0: Uh, what will stick out? Yeah, it's uh, I mean, from my side, I, I think you know, as you as you mentioned, David, I mean, remarkably different from twenty sixteen. It's yeah, it's sometimes a little crazy to think about, um, you know, how different the world was back then, but. Yeah. I think in those those five years, uh, you know, as, as Elizabeth Denham acting as commissioner, you know, we've seen a huge amount of stuff obviously brought in at the time of um, GDPR being passed in a couple of years of its lead up to full entry into force. Uh, there was Brexit, obviously, over the last couple of years, we've had um, the the pandemic, we've had all of the issues that we just talked about of uh, ad tech and mm-hmm. you know new technologies from financial services from the ad tech industry, loads and loads of things. So I mean, it's quite a it's quite a five years that um, Elizabeth Denham has been Information Commissioner of, and yeah. I thought one one of the things that I thought quite was quite nice when um, she gave a, a speech that I was reading on the ICO. Uh, website and she was reflecting on her own time uh, as information uh, commissioner and uh, reflected on the first speech that she gave and she said that, you know, a key message of that first speech was that organizations should not be thinking about privacy or innovation but privacy and innovation and -hmm. that remains as true as ever today. And I think, um, you know, those two things of privacy and innovation kind of sum up you know those five years uh, both in terms of technological change regulatory change that um you know she oversaw so yeah definitely a a a big five years I think
2: yeah I mean look I think I've known at least four information commissioners and I would say that she has had the hardest time Uh, in the sense that she joined the ICO at a time when the ICO was due to become a very influential European regulator with a critical role to play in the EDPB, a critical role to play in the development of the GDPR. Then the the Brexit referendum hit and that has been uh, very, very present within her tenure, and obviously she she has to function, and the, her office had to function on that basis, mm-hmm. uh, surrounded by that uncertainty. And when you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you have a, a framework that has been such an integral part of the European Union data protection framework, and suddenly you start uh, pulling up, up aside from from that, then that is uh, mm-hmm. a a rocky, a rocky ground to to operate. So I think that mm-hmm. has been the uh, the main challenge that Liz has has faced. But uh, in terms of her her legacy, I think obviously what I remember is first of all the the Cambridge Analytica investigation that was mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> everybody will remember the jackets, you yeah. know. But <laughs> there is a lot more than jackets behind that. That and I think a lot of attention was devoted by the regulator to, to the issues raised by, by that. And there were some trouble troubling issues. And I think if, if if they were to, or if she was to say, what she's most proud of is probably the the Children's Code and, the, and that type of mm-hmm. uh, work that the ICO is so, so good at, of looking at an issue, dissecting it, coming up with practical ways of addressing it that don't really stop the world, but that mm-hmm. actually uh, put the or sort of the, gives you the clues for for compliance in a very, very, very uh, practical way. So that is something on an issue like, for example, the collection of children data, which is always a sensitive thing, uh, that's something that she would be very proud of, I'm sure. And I think um, uh, John will have a Will have to take uh, take the baton from there, and will inject his own, I-, I guess, his own personality and his own views to to uh, to the ICO at a very critical time. I think we're going to see changes in in the UK fra- legal framework. We're going to see changes in technology and the, the wider global issues, and I think. Uh, the UK has an important role to play, and I know we've discussed that before, and the ICO has an important role to play. And I think Mm -hmm. the warning at the end of her, in in her uh, kind of departing shots by Liz about, look, uh, a warning to the government saying don't make this agency too submissive to government objectives. We understand we we don't operate in a vacuum. And I think the ICO has always understood that and all information commissioners and data protection commissioners and data protection registrars have understood that. Mm -hmm. But I think she was trying to say we still need to have an independent voice. And I think it will have. And I think, look, I, I know John uh, and I, I think he will not resign to s- just being like I don't know uh, a messenger for for what mm-hmm. is otherwise a political statement. And and I think the government will have to work with the ICO, and the ICO will have to work with the government. But it's interesting time, and I think Elizabeth has played a, a crucial role, a, a crucial role at a crucial time for global data protection.
1: Yeah, I mean just listening to you speak there, Eduardo, you know, over five years, which for a start is a long, a long tenure in a public job, um, you know, the growth of the Internet in that time and the use of personal data in many new and interesting and challenging ways, Brexit, uh, you know, kind of big tech and lots of questions about, you know, the role that, you know, technology companies play in our, in our lives and, um, you know, the regulator's role also in, in, in interfering or, or kind of intervening in, in that. Um, not to mention the social issues which you just mentioned. There's, I mean, it's, it was a huge job, right? Like this is something that, like anyone looking back, would say, "Wow, that's that's a lot to take on." And um, really interesting to see where John Edwards takes it in, in in the new year. Good stuff, right? Thanks very much, Eduardo. Thanks as always, Alexis. Really great to to catch up with you guys at the end of the year, and we look forward to our next podcast, hopefully in the first couple of months of of twenty twenty two.
2: Looking forward to it already.
1: Cheers. Thanks so much. Thanks,
2: Edward. Happy New Year to everyone and take care and stay safe.
0: That Privacy Podcast. Brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells.